Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly Update, where we're bringing you news from around the country and around the world in commercial real estate. Uh, this week, we've got a couple of very interesting articles for you uh, from the most sought-after piece of real estate in the national market for the last 25 years, all the way to commercial real estate moguls getting involved in single-family residential. I think that that's pretty interesting. For those of you all that know my take on single-family, uh, you, uh, you know that I'm obviously very intrigued by that because I don't understand it. So we'll be talking about that. It'll be a lot of fun. For everybody joining us live, feel free to leave your comments in the live chat. Um, and let's, let's open up a conversation. Appreciate everybody that's listening on the podcast as well. Let's go ahead and dive on in to the Nashville market. So as I was saying, the PSC Metals Scrapyard Standoff. Got a pretty dramatic piece here this week from the Nashville Business Journal. So if you're not familiar with the, the PSC Metals Scrapyard, it is, uh, I mean, just looking at the image right there, it's got one of the best views of the skyline in downtown Nashville. It actually sits on the eastern bank uh, of the Cumberland River and just, just south of the Titan Stadium. I mean, you can you park right next to this to go to the Titan Stadium. And it has been there for years. You know, the running joke is that every mayor has, has longingly looked at that site, hoping that they could be the one to, to get it turned into something else. And it just hasn't happened um, until, you know, the past couple of years. Uh, they've actually started talking about how, um, you know, how the city can work with the current owners in order to uh, finally, you know, get this site moved and redevelop it. You know, we've been talking a lot about the River North development. This is basically River, River South, um, if you want to call it that. There's probably no official term for it, but if it needs a name, there we go. We just coined it, River South. Um, it's a really interesting piece of property, just considering it's it's between the river, it's right off the interstate, and you're right downtown, and it's a large piece. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of that um, in the near future. In other news, Nashville Post, uh, BMS and Cooper sign LOI to renovate the fairground speedway. This is really interesting. NASCAR could be coming to Nashville uh, if this deal ends up going through. So there's the operator that's going to be coming in. They will be bearing the financial responsibility for the renovations. The, the tracks at the fairground have been, um, you know, a bit of a, I guess, controversial topic um, in, in recent years because Wedgwood Houston and the surrounding neighborhoods have really taken off uh, for residential uses. And of course, you know, uh, those, those cars are not very quiet as they are running around. And, and also it just hasn't been as popular in Nashville, but now with, with NASCAR coming in, this could be a pretty big deal. You know, the fairgrounds is, a, is an incredibly popular area. You're located just outside of downtown between two major thoroughfares. So Nolensville Road and 8th Avenue. Uh, you know, they've been talking about doing um, some pretty massive redevelopments over there with, with some city-owned land, uh, converting that into, you know, apartments or, or event spaces. You know, it's actually where the, uh, not far from where the Nashville Sounds used to have their original stadium. Um, so it'll be pretty interesting to see what that would be like. And, and you know, of course, the great thing about a, a lease uh, situation like this is that the city won't have to bear financial responsibility. Um, on the property, but they also don't have to sell it, which has been a bit of a controversial topic in Nashville too. You know, the city uh, in recent years has has been struggling with some, um, how do we say uh, this this lightly, financial issues with balancing the budget in the city. Uh, we've got a lot of these, you know, amazing programs, but we haven't been able to, you know, have them pay for themselves in the right ways, uh, even though property taxes and everything has gone up. And so, um, you know, there have been pieces of property that have been sold off because of this. And a lot of Nashvillians are not very happy that the city is selling land like that for, you know, private development, which is totally understandable. Even, even as a private developer, you know, I don't want all of my city land being sold uh, necessarily. I think, I think it needs to be done responsibly and, and, you know, through the proper channels. Um, and of course, you've got the Nashville Soccer Stadium that's right down the street from this too. I mean, let's not forget that. That's been one of the biggest announcements that's come through Nashville in, in the past, you know, several years. Uh, is Nashville landing an international soccer club? Um, you know, that's it's just it's huge for the city of Nashville. You think about how many how many cities around the country can say that they have 
a minor league baseball team, a professional hockey team, a professional football team, a professional soccer team, NASCAR, Formula One coming. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty outstanding to see what is going on in Nashville. And that's not even getting started with college sports. I mean, you've got Vanderbilt, Belmont, TSU. You've got some pretty outstanding programs. Um, MTSU is not far away either. Uh, for Middle Tennessee, so um, it's it's a it's a sports city, and, and for as small as Nashville is, that's pretty rare. So, you know, NASCAR announcing that they could potentially be coming to uh, to the fairgrounds uh, is pretty great. Um, they're going to be making some uh, safety upgrades, potentially adding a new grandstand and supplementary facilities, um, which would be for not just the racing. Uh, aspects of NASCAR, but also for the non-racing experiences. You know, there's uh, flea markets and stuff like that that go on over at the fairgrounds at the moment. And so uh, it'll be great to see, um, you know, some new life coming to that area. Let's see. Oh, we've got a couple of big apartment sales, which are are very interesting. Uh, Just considering the sheer scale, look at that. Now, this is according to the Nashville Post. Bellevue Apartment Complex sells for $94.5 million. Uh, that is a big number for Nashville. I mean, that's probably a big number for anywhere, but that's a big number for Nashville. That's It's a 556-unit property, um, and I, I want to say, yeah, it's about $170,000 a door, which by no means is a record-setting price per door. I mean, Nashville has had – you know, $280,000 plus prices per doors oh, for the last few years. But, I mean, 556 units, that's a big piece of property. This is in Bellevue. It's just southwest of Nashville. One thing that I think is pretty significant about this is that, you know, it's about 10 minutes outside of town. Um, and so in, in a little sleepy area. And so you just think about sleepy little Bellevue having a $94.5 million transaction. You know, that part of town, that's actually where I built my, that's where I did my first development, uh, was in Bellevue over off of Highway 70 South. So right down the street from this, um, you know, we did 42 units out there. It's always been one of those markets that's uh, really just a sleeper. You know, it kind of flies under the radar, but it performs really well. I mean, you know, like I said, you're, you're 10, maybe 15 minutes outside of town. Traffic will not, it, it's kind of gotten to a point where it can't really get any worse. Um, because there's nothing really past Bellevue. You know, it's not like being in Brentwood where you've got Cool Springs, Franklin, you know, Thompson Station, Spring Hill, Columbia. Uh, there's, I mean, there's just not much past Bellevue. You've got Dixon, uh, but Dixon's not that big. So pretty significant news for, uh, for Bellevue there. Another record-setting apartment uh, deal Uh, In Brentwood, so just south of Nashville, this is also according to the Nashville Post, Brentwood Apartment Complex sells for $130 million. So we're talking about $35 million more. And get this, it's only 393 units. So that brings the price per door, I want to say around $330,000 a door. $330,000 a door. I mean, that's almost, that's retail price for a condo Uh, in in parts of Nashville. I mean, you can get brand new condos, you know, they're on the smaller side for less than 300. Um, so this is pretty remarkable. I mean, one thing to note about this, if you are familiar with Brentwood at all, this is the only site in Brentwood that is actually zoned for multifamily. Um, if I, if I'm recalling correctly, Brentwood doesn't even have a zoning for multifamily. They didn't want to keep that. They didn't, they just don't want that there. Um, so this, this project really flew under the radar. It's the only one that, that could ever be like that, which is why it's fetching a record setting price per door. It's also beautiful. It's, it's walking distance to, uh, one of, one of the biggest shopping centers, um, in Brentwood. And of course, Peter's sushi, which is hands down one of my favorite sushi restaurants. If you ever or find yourself out in Brentwood, stop by Peter's, you will not be disappointed. All right, so that is it for the Nashville market. Next, we've got Market Watch. So what market are we going to be watching this week? Well, that's a good question. It is Knoxville. I'm going to pull this up for us real quick here. So Knoxville is a a very interesting market. It's it's what ULI, this is the ULI Emerging Trends of 2021 um, sheet. And I've got Knoxville pulled up so that we can kind of search through it. 
So in terms of overall real estate prospects, ULI ranks Knoxville as 75. I, I mean, that, and that's number 75 in the country, which is pretty amazing if you think about how small of a market Knoxville really is and the fact that Tennessee has several cities in the top 100. Um, you've got, of course, Nashville, Chattanooga. Um, I'm sure Memphis is nowhere on there. Um, oh, it is. Memphis is 77. That's pretty surprising. Um, I mean, that's pretty amazing for, for a little city like Knoxville. You might be wondering, well, what's going on in Knoxville that would make it such an attractive city? You know, they're, they're home building prospects. It's number 47 in the country in terms of home building. Um, again, they're one of those boutique niche markets, according to ULI. Well, Knoxville has the University of Tennessee Knoxville there, which is, of course, the, the, the real UT. Uh, the famous UT, um, you know, and a growing tech hub. Uh, it's it's pretty nice to see that that small cities like this in the state of Tennessee are starting to attract as much tech attention um, as we're starting to see. Uh, you know, I mean, Tennessee historically just hasn't been a tech state, um, but these smaller cities, especially the ones in eastern Tennessee, right, because they're smaller. And you're just outside of the mountains, and they're affordable. So when you combine, you know, the strong tech and and the affordability factors, you know, with the accessibility to outdoor amenities like that, makes it a pretty great place to live. I mean, look at this. They're rating it uh, average in terms of local market perspective. There was one that was pretty interesting uh, that I saw. Let me pull it up. I'm going to go through here real quick. So in terms of the local market perspective for public and private investment, it's actually ranked higher than Chicago, which again, I mean, that's, that's pretty remarkable. But that wasn't even the one I wanted to show you. The one I wanted to show you is that in terms of their local economy, it's outperforming Chicago. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that their GDP is better than Chicago. It doesn't mean that they're getting more dollars, you know, in terms of real estate investments than Chicago. And, and look, it's only by a slight bit. It's by 0.02 points um, out of, what, probably a total of five. Um, Knoxville is ranked 2.93. Chicago is 2.91. I mean, it's not a significant difference of Knoxville over Chicago. But you think about Knoxville, a tiny little town like Knoxville, competing with a massive city like Chicago in terms of their economic health. It's pretty outstanding to me. This next article, The Secret's Out. Oh, let's see if I can get rid of this. Uh, Knox County, weathering pandemic with strong real estate and revenue performance. So they actually were collecting all of their uh, taxes, uh, which exceeded previous years. That's pretty surprising. Uh, despite the pandemic, they continued to roll the revenue in for the city. Uh, and, you know, the uh, the Knox County Register of Deeds is saying it's, it's because there's so many people that are moving there. They've had a massive surge in real estate sales in the last 14 to 15 months. And according to the county warranty deed transactions, um, it looks like they're up from 13,280 transactions in 2019 to 14,277 in 2020. Despite the pandemic, Knoxville increased the number of transactions by 1,000. Uh, that's pretty remarkable. Um, so an increase of 7.5%. Uh, this is an article from uh, WBIR. So, you know, it honestly, having lived in Knoxville for a little bit, uh, when I when I pretended to go to college for a, a couple of years, I would not have thought that Knoxville would be a very in-demand city. I mean, honestly, the one thing that I took away from the city was it made me love Nashville that much more for what Nashville is. Um, but, I mean, clearly there's something to be said about what's going on in Knoxville. Um, let's see. Oh, they're dealing with the same thing that Nashville is. Many buyers are coming in ready to pay cash. Can you imagine how frustrating that is trying to buy a house in Nashville right now? And you've got people who are moving here from California, New York, Chicago, that are looking at the home prices going, wow, that's a deal. I'll pay you know $50,000 over asking and I'll pay cash and I'll close in two weeks. It's happening left and right. We don't do any residential um, at the Cobble Group, but we've got a number of, of friends that are in the residential brokerage area, and they're dealing with that. And uh, it, it's really interesting to see that that's happening in Knoxville. 
too. State is seeing strength in the real estate market all the way down to southern Tennessee borders like McNary near the Alabama and Mississippi lines. It's, I mean, and of course, they're talking about everything here that we keep saying about the state of Tennessee. It's business friendly. It's affordable to live and work with low property taxes and no income tax. Uh, you know, we do have a relatively high sales tax rate, but uh, I mean, I'm used to it. And if, if you don't spend a whole lot of your money on random stuff, it, it, that's a tax that doesn't really come back to bite you, right? So pretty, uh, pretty interesting move there. Okay, this next article, according to Knox News, global tech company opening $27 million hub in Knoxville plans to recruit UT students. That's great to hear. So CGI, which is a global tech company, went to East Tennessee um, for its next U.S. support center. Um, so they're going to open up their eighth delivery center in Knoxville uh, for $27 million of investment, and they're planning to create around 300 jobs. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. And, of course, they're going to be recruiting heavily from the University of Tennessee. Looks like, according to this article, that they conducted a two-year search process uh, before landing on Knox County for its newest center, which will provide IT services and support to clients. So it looks like, uh, you know, they haven't finalized a permanent location, but they've already decided, you know, hey, look, we're moving into Knox County and we're going to be spending the money. Um, so I'm sure they're working with, with you know, economic and government leaders uh, to figure out where makes the most sense for them and, and what uh, what kind of incentives and stuff like that. You know, Tennessee has had a number of phenomenal incentive packages for these big companies to to relocate headquarters and all kinds of stuff like that back to the state, which has really helped Tennessee thrive, um, you know, throughout uh, not only this economic upcycle, but, uh, you know, continue to thrive throughout the pandemic. So, again, it's pretty interesting to see. Let's see if it shows in here why they decided to move their tech company. Um, so they were looking for a place that had a highly skilled workforce, a growing economy, and a pro-business environment. No brand you're going to choose Tennessee. Let's see. They plan to have regional educators engaged. They want to support the workforce development in the region. They're going to create opportunities for communities, gra students, graduates, and professionals. They love Knox County because it has a commitment to innovation, a tremendous, that's in quotes, quality of life, a pool of potential employees at UT, and a healthy business ecosystem. So there you go. There you have it. I mean, it's uh, it kind of seems like a no-brainer. Uh, in terms of, you know, what these kind of tech companies are, are going to be looking for. I mean, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week with so many groups moving or at least considering relocating out of California. You look at where they could possibly go. And I, I mean, Tennessee is such a phenomenal option. You know, of course, you've got Texas, right? So we're, we're, we're rivaling Austin, really, when it comes to that. But if you're looking at how expensive market is and you're comparing Austin and Nashville, you're probably going to pick Nashville. Nashville's more affordable. Now, it's not quite up to where Austin is. But then if you're looking at, okay, well, we're definitely going to Tennessee. There's no state income tax. What should we do? And you're looking at Nashville, Chattanooga, and Knoxville. You might heavily consider you know, Chattanooga and Knoxville along with Nashville, just depending on you know, what kind of quality of life. I mean, I don't, certainly don't want to sell anybody away from my own city, but you know, there's a reason we just bought a, a tower in Chattanooga. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenally fast-growing city. It's unbelievable to watch, and it's just got so much going for it. All right, we're moving on into the future of commercial real estate. So we decided to shake things up a little bit this week. I'm sure you've noticed if you've been watching the, the episodes, we used to go through the various asset types. This week, we're just covering topics that we think are pretty interesting. So the future of commercial real estate. Well, of course, what do we think we're, we're going to be talking about first? The future of offices when workers have a choice. This is an article from The Upshot. And I thought that this one was pretty interesting because, again, it touches on a little bit of what we have uh, we've spoken about in previous weeks, which is, you know, office space is almost becoming more of an amenity um, to to the city. Right. I mean, you think about kind of what we work has done um, or what you know, there's a, there's a place uh, here in Nashville called Pinewood Social, which is really modeled after a Soho house. 
where, you know, if you any city you go to, you can kind of stop into a Soho house if they have one and you're a member and you can hang out, you can work all day, you can, you know, some of them have residences you can crash at, but it's like a coffee shop that turns into a lunch spot that turns into like a dinner and event space, like stuff's going on. So it's really cool. I mean, Pinewood's big enough. You know, one of my buddies went and worked out of there um, for four hours the other day. Uh, it, it's it's kind of got this, you know, flex office vibe, uh, which, you know, we've been talking about will be the future of office space. I mean, look, office space is not dying. It's not going anywhere. Uh, it's funny. I was just looking up at, at my screen share and noticing that y'all can see all of the tabs of all of the articles that we're going to be covering. And that gives me anxiety just looking at how many tabs we have open. Like if my normal browser looked like that, I would not be having a good day. Anyway, getting sidetracked, uh, talking about Flex Office. So they're talking about, let's see, in the middle of the 2010s, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Apple, and others started splitting their headquarters into multiple locations. Nashville was actually a part of that when it came to Amazon. You know, Amazon announced that they were going to do one location, and then all of a sudden it became three. Um, they chose Nashville. New York was chosen, but I don't know where they ended up going because I think that that didn't work out. Um, anyway, and it makes more sense, right? You get to kind of s- just spread out and – um, you don't have to hire so much for your, your company into one city. And also, it, it's good for the cities, right? Because they don't become so dependent on one giant corporation having so many jobs. You know, you think if something like happens like uh, with Enron and how many employees all of a sudden in one day hit the job market, that wouldn't be good. Um, yeah, so it's saying here for the fastest growing companies, being able to, ta- to tap into talent anywhere. Uh, became more important than having all of their teams in one place. So, you know, again, instead of having one giant office or one giant headquarters, I could see companies having these smaller satellite comp- uh, satellite offices in all these cities. Um, you know, we're even talking about some of the bigger ones here in Nashville. Now, this is pretty interesting. I think that we're going to start seeing this happen more and more. But, you know, leave their big offices downtown and they'll have an East Nashville office. They'll have a Green Hills office. They'll have a Cool Springs office. They'll have a Mount Juliet office. And it'll be much, much smaller than their one you know, main location um, because it'll give their employees the opportunity to, you know, if you live in Spring Hill, drive to the Cool Springs office instead of having to go from Spring Hill, which is 45 minutes to an hour outside of Nashville, all the way to downtown. So I think that that just makes sense. Um, excited to see, you know, kind of where that goes. All right. According to BizNow, the music is going to stop. The home builder land grab is a crisis in the making. I think that this one is actually supposed to be uh, for later on. Nod your head, Andy. Y'all can't see Andy, but yeah, okay, he's nodding his head. Okay, we'll move this one to later on. Um, Andy is joining me. Uh, we will talk to him here in a minute. Let me pull this uh, article back up. Okay. So, future of commercial real estate, drive-through lanes become hotter commodities in the pandemic. This is according to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, this is also a no-brainer. We've, we saw a massive explosion in demand for to-go and delivery. And all of the major fast food concepts, they also took note of that. So, you know, drive-throughs are becoming almost a necessity for some of these restaurant experiences, depending on the accessibility. So it looks like according to Camille Renshaw, you can pull up in your car and stay socially distant, right? Um, Yeah, I mean, in a post-COVID world, having drive-thrus, having these options, I don't think that it's everything, but I think it's pretty important. Um, You know, if you can get it, get it. We've had a number of retailers and restaurants that they want to get drive-thrus, but it's it's not easy getting a drive-thru. Um, it can actually be one of the most difficult things to do, you know, because we focus on urban real estate. So you think about how how would that even work um, for for some of these smaller, tight tighter areas? Um, let's see. Even restaurant chains that have never offered drive through options are rolling out lanes like Shake Shack. That's pretty interesting. They're doing their first drive through in Orlando. Um, I know that uh, Chipotle has been ch- has been talking about doing some drive throughs. And uh, it looks like uh, like Burger King has come out with a new concept that has triple drive-through lanes. 
I mean, they they must have gone over to Chick-fil-A to figure out how they were doing their drive through lanes. I mean, that's insane. Um, Chick-fil-A has had that for years uh, just because they're, they're small and because of their popularity. People are going to go over there and wait in line. And so they've, they've started doing these two- and three-lane um, drive throughs be interesting to see Burger King doing that. One thing that I wonder, though, is like, you know, after the pandemic, once this is all passed away, will people maintain the same habits that we've had to, to develop over the last year? And will they really be will, will there really be so much demand for drive throughs that spending all this money and investing on this is worth it? Because if you look at how much real estate those drive throughs are actually taking up, I mean, they're having to pay for that dirt. And the dirt where these guys want to go is usually not cheap. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, you know if, you're, if you're in a rural, um, rural area and you can find sites for, for relatively inexpensively, then this, this probably makes all the sense of the world. Why, why not just go ahead and do it so that you have it? But if you're in a more urban environment, it's going to be very difficult to, to get one drive-through, let alone three. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Let's see. Here's, a, here's an interesting stat. Um, properties with drive-through lanes typically command 10 to 20% higher rent compared to those without. And I would imagine that that depends on the location and the city. Because in Nashville, you're paying way more than that. I mean, we're talking, you know, if you're going to find a, a single tenant net lease. So we've got a restaurant listed right now. It's a little over 2,000 square feet. And the rent is about 6400 a month, uh, give or take, when you include the triple net expenses. Well, we were looking at a, a, an Arby's location, uh, probably 1,800 square feet. Now, granted, it's standalone. It's on a corner at a lighted corner. So, you know, it's tough to give it an apples-to-apples comparison. The other property is standalone as well. It's just not on, you know, a super highly trafficked uh, area. It's in the middle of five points. This, uh, the, the Hardee's, um, I forgot, it was on Nolensville Road or something like that. Well, it was, you know, the rent for that was 120000 a year. So that's 10000 a month. I mean, that, that's almost 50% more, um, over 50% more. Um, when you think about, you know, those rates, it, it's, it's expensive to get a drive through in Nashville. Um, you know, they can be worth it, though. I wonder if it says anywhere in this article how much more these restaurants can end up making um, if, they, if they end up adding a drive through It doesn't say so. Scrolling through. This is a pretty interesting article. It's long. It talks about, you know, Starbucks. Uh, they're planning to open about 800 stores annually. Uh, particularly in suburban locations with drive-through lanes. That's pretty cool. Chipotle, expanding a similar strategy. Company plans to add 200 locations this year um, with drive-throughs. That's pretty cool with digital ordering. So that'll be pretty neat. Keep an eye out for that. See you know, how that comes to affect the, the future of commercial real estate. So this is also from the Wall Street Journal. Land rush is on in four states that approved recreational pot last year. Of course, uh, you know, this has been a uh, almost laughable topic uh, in commercial real estate for quite some time now because, you know, you've got this older generation that is unwilling to accept uh, that pot is here to stay or they think that it's controversial or whatever. But that is actually providing a massive amount of opportunity for the smaller guys who are willing to work with with the cannabis industry. So warehouses and retail space are charging premiums in California, Colorado, anywhere that's legal, because there are so many real estate investors out there that are not willing to rent to cannabis, uh, cannabis stores, cannabis, you know, manufacturers, growers, whatever. Uh, they're just, they don't want to be involved with them because, you know, according to the federal government, it is still, you know, not legalized. Um, and so there's, there's this stigma almost of having a tenant that's, you know, operating something technically illegal. Now, there are certain things that I'm sure are legitimate, uh, concerns as a property owner, right? I mean, you know, how are you going to insure the property? 
but then again, I mean, if it's legalized in your state, why wouldn't your insurance company? I mean, surely you could find somebody to you know to carry that. I think it's changed dramatically um, since the first uh, dispensary that I went into. The first dispensary I went into was probably, gosh, five or six years ago in California. And when you went in there, it was it was like Fort Knox. I mean, they had three inch plexiglass and they had the the barriers like this with the plexiglass so that they didn't you know, they could talk to you, but you couldn't get through them. And then they had a camera outside as well to watch everything. And then they had to buzz you in through this door and that like led you into this holding room where you then had to stand and they would like, I guess, visually inspect you. And then they would let you into the next room. I mean, it was just ridiculous how much security they had to have, right? Because when they first legalized it, you still had so much criminal activity surrounding it that they needed to protect themselves. Well, the last one that I went into when I was in California last year, you just walk right on in. Like it's, it's like, it's like walking into a target except for it's just pot everywhere. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing how it's so widely accepted now that, you know, if if you're going to try and rob one, I mean, good luck. What are you going to do? Um, so this is a pretty phenomenal opportunity uh, for, you know, smaller commercial real estate investors. If you are buying up industrial, you're buying up retail and you have the infrastructure and you are willing and able um, to work with the cannabis industry, I mean, why not? Why not go ahead and take advantage of that? Again, they're, they're getting premium rates. So again, for all of y'all that are joining us live, feel free to leave your questions in the live chat. That's probably that way, or maybe it's that way. Um, happy to open up a, a conversation if you've got any questions about anything that we are covering. So this is also with the Wall Street Journal. Oh, we are moving on to the next topic, actually. Hospitality hurting. So it's no surprise that Airbnb and uh, you know hotels, resorts have all been struggling throughout the pandemic, right? Because there's no travel allowed. So, of course, hospitality is going to be struggling. Well, it's creating some pretty interesting scenarios. So let's look at this first one. Hotel sellers use car sales model to finance lodging deals. So banks, owners offer cheaper rates and sometimes require little money down to unload unprofitable hotels. I mean, look, if you get into a desperate enough scenario and somebody is willing to come along just to take it off your hands, you're probably going to do that because, you know, maybe you're not getting a return on your money, but you're also not losing money. And I think that that's the scenario that some of these hoteliers are getting into. So lodging industry is under such stress that some property sellers are willing to lend to prospective hotel buyers the way auto dealers finance vehicle sales, offer cheap rates, and sometimes with little money down. You know, it's, uh, it's a pretty telling sign of what is going on in the hotel industry when we're starting to see, uh, you know, articles like this. I mean, a hotel buyer pays only part of the price up front, usually between 25 and 50%. Um, the rest is treated as a loan from the seller to the buyer. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, seller financing is not uncommon in commercial real estate. So, you know, we think about what, uh, what that opportunity can mean. I mean, look, you could actually probably get in there and get a hotel for relatively cheap right now. I mean, think about it. If you can go get, so a 50% seller financing, you get them to carry a second note. All you have to do is finance that other 50%. So you may be able to get away with bringing in, you know, 10 to 20% um, of the total project with, you know, the bank being pretty secure in their note because they've got a first. And if the seller's willing to take a second, you know, the bank's not going to object to that. The bank's going to get paid first. Uh, you know, it really comes down to if the, if the seller's willing to take that on. Um, but, I mean, look, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in the hospitality world right now. I think that in the next, oh, my gosh, I mean, I think in the next six months alone, if not by May or June, it's going to take off because, you know, there's so much pent-up demand. People are so tired of being home. And I think that we're starting to finally see the end of the light, uh, the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel uh, with COVID. Um you know, it's it, the, the vaccines out, it's, you know, relatively successful so far. 
and we're starting to kind of get the thumbs up from the medical community that, you know, hey, we, we could see the end to this, which is great. Gods of Dinity, Dinity says, hey, uh, how's it going? Sorry for butchering your, uh, your name there. Uh, saying uh, your page is so relatable. Commercial real estate is so intimidating. Appreciate your content. Absolutely. Happy to, happy to be uh, shooting it out there. Glad you're enjoying it. Um, hopefully this channel was making commercial real estate a little less intimidating for you. We try to make it fun around here. Uh, you know, honestly, the only reason I think that commercial real estate is, is intimidating and, and you're not the only one that feels that way, by the way, so many people give me, uh, that kind of feedback is that there's just not a whole lot of information like this out there. And so, you know, that's why I decided to start doing, you know, this show and doing the interviews and doing the videos every week. And now we're starting to do the vlogs is that there's just not a lot of information out there on commercial real estate. So people just don't have a good opportunity to learn about it. So I uh, appreciate you saying that. We're really excited to, to be providing this for you. So, yeah, it's uh, pretty interesting to see what's going on in the hotel world. I would, I would take a look uh, at some hotels right now. I mean, we're actually uh, hopefully, I haven't gotten the email yet, but today we made an offer on a 50-key motel. Um, we're hoping to, uh, to have that back here in a minute. Um, well, looks like my buttons have messed up for some reason. I have to figure out what the deal is there. Let me see. Oh, that's interesting. All right. Well, my buttons reset, so I may not be able to go into the um, the other scenes, but we'll see how we can figure this out. Um, okay. So moving on, uh, Holy Leisure and Hospitality Batman this is another business now, uh, or BizNow article. Economists react to February jobs report on Twitter. Total non-farm payroll employment grew by 379,000 jobs in February. If you are listening on the podcast, you can't see this, uh, this graph that we've got in front of us, but man, is it a spike in uh, total employment. Pretty remarkable um, to see what's going on there. Unemployment rate fell slightly to 6.2%. Most of February's job gains came from the leisure and hospitality sector, which added 355,000 jobs. Uh, a little more than 80% of those jobs are in food services and drinking places, which is great to see. I mean, we're starting to see that, uh, you know, there, there, again, it's kind of going back to there's a light at the end of the tunnel, and we are finally getting back to, you know, some sort of relative sense of normality, right? I mean, you know, obviously we're not back to normal uh, by any means, but, you know, being able to um, go to restaurants, go to bars, you know, really enjoy that is, is pretty exciting to see. So let's see. I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. I think, I think that's really all they cover in this article. It's a pretty significant, um, number of jobs, 355,000 in February. All right, this one coming from hotelbusiness.com. Life after COVID-19, how hotels can prepare for the future. It's no secret that the COVID-19 crisis has shocked the hospitality industry, as we were just saying. Uh, you know, how are they going to recover? Look at that. It continues to struggle with almost two-thirds of hotels at or below 50% occupancy. People just aren't traveling. And, you know, most of these, most of these hotels, they, their break-evens like 70%. Um, if not higher in some markets. So that's a, uh, that's a pretty high number. Um, so anyway, let's see. Sorry, I'm getting distracted by my buttons here. I don't know why this reset. It went to, uh, it went to my C3 podcast buttons, and I have no idea how to fix that. Um, so we'll just have to keep rolling with it, I guess. Anyway, moving on to the Wall Street Journal. So this is really supposed to be under the, the PE deal dive. So we're changing sections. Sorry that I can't bring this up again. But commercial property giant moves into rental houses. So PE deal dive, obviously private equity deal dive. Let's talk about 
what is going on in the big boy world of commercial real estate. So Jones Lang LaSalle, which is JOL, uh, they took a minority stake in Roofstock, which is a, a management company, uh, rental manager um, for uh, single family homes for big investment companies. Let's see. Goads has a uh, comment. Is it true that most hotels only profit about 100K a year? Um, I, I'm not sure. I think it, it would totally depend on um, what kind of hotel it is. I mean, you know, your, your top-of-the-line Hilton is going to be very different from your La Quinta Inn. Um, but, you know, that being said, I don't know the actual profitability numbers of hotels. I would imagine it's got to be more than that, right? But, you know, it totally depends on how many keys they have and, and that kind of stuff. So let's see, JLL, um, which is, you know, they're a huge office leasing group. Um, they also manage a lot of, of office space. They, let's see, they struck a pact with Roofstock, which manages rental port, uh, properties for big investors and operates an online marketplace on which income-producing single-family homes trade. Interesting. There's uh, probably a future digital play there um, as well. They're also buying, so Roofstock is also buying from JLL a real estate asset management platform geared to smaller investors. So this seems to be a pretty, pretty smart investment on both parts. Uh, they're really combining the, the best of both worlds, everything that they could really get uh, out of, you know, combining with each other um, and, and making it happen. So let me see. Interesting. I don't know. Okay, well, there we go. I can figure it out that way. So we've got that. Now let me figure out how to share my screen again. That might have not have been the best thing that I could have done. Okay. All right, awesome. We've got the C3 podcast. I don't know how to switch this folder over. is interesting okay so pe deal dive sorry guys bear with me i'm just trying to get this figured out real quick because it's it's starting to really bother me okay all right well I, i'll just figure it out manually um i don't know how to share my screen though that, that is a problem Okay, we'll just keep it here. This is fun. Um, so, you know, JLL coming into Roofstock. I mean, look, we've got a big commercial real estate group coming into the world of single-family residential, which is it's massive, right? I mean, single-family is not a very interesting world to me. I, I don't understand it um, because, you know, why would you want to go out and buy a whole bunch of homes that have a whole bunch of roofs that are in a bunch of different locations um, and, you know, deal with something like that? I guess, you know, if you're buying it at scale, maybe the portfolio makes sense. Um, you know, the number of single family rental homes has skyrocketed over the last few years. I mean, I mentioned Spring Hill earlier. You know, Spring Hill actually has, I think, over 50 percent of the single family homes in that uh, in that little town are single-family rentals, uh, which is pretty pretty wild if you think about it. Build-to-rent developers. This is another BizNow article. Build-to-rent developers see opportunity in growing renter class. Owning a detached single-family house doesn't quite have the appeal it once did, uh, which is, again, which is so true, right? I mean, gosh, we were talking, I talk about this all the time. The problem with owning single-family homes is that you have to pay so much to maintain it. Like, yeah, I mean, it's great. You're, you're getting your own home. Maybe you're building equity into something. But at the same time, if your roof leaks, you have to deal with that. If your dishwasher breaks, you have to deal with that. That's why I'm a big proponent of living in an apartment building. Uh, you know, my expenses are far lower uh, than they would be otherwise. And if anything breaks, I just tell the landlord and, you know, I don't have to deal with it. Uh, so it seems like people are, are looking at the same way for single-family homes. Now, of course, if you've got kids or if you've got a pet, you know, maybe an apartment isn't as appealing, and, and maybe that's why 
people are starting to rent single family homes. But again, I'm not saying from the renter's perspective, it doesn't make sense. I, I just have a hard time wrapping my mind around it making sense for a large real estate investment firm. So it looks like currently six of six percent of new single family homes are developed specifically to be rented, which is a pretty high number if you actually think about the number of homes uh, that are getting built um, every year, right? And they're saying that isn't going to be enough considering the projected growth demand uh, for single family rental units. Um, you know, again, millennials who are notorious for renting apartments um, are going to be notorious for renting homes. So I'm sure the market will continue to do well. Um, there's no lack of potential tenants or prospective tenants um, in that space, but, you know, we'll see where it goes. Let's see. Investors are making a big bet on build-to-rent single-family homes. Again, just another article, uh, this one from National Real Estate Investor, going into build-to-rent homes. Uh, you know, I've got to have my, my buddy Bruce McNeilage on, on to the show. I, we, we should interview him. Let me know in the comments if, you, if you'd like to hear from a developer that is doing specifically build-to-rent product uh, in the single-family world space. Basically, what he does is he goes out, develops these neighborhoods, and then sells them off as a package to a REIT, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, I mean, it's it's clearly a rapidly growing sector. And you know what? Maybe I need to have him on here to have him uh, help me change my perspective um, on single family. Looks like uh, developers are on track to reach 55,000 to 60,000 new rental housing construction starts in 2020, which is uh, – that's wild. Um According to the NRHC, which is the National Rental Home Council, there'd be a big increase from 40,000 uh, just the year prior. So, wow. It's saying a few years ago, developers typically built only fifteen to 20,000 rental houses a year. So it's, this is clearly a rapidly growing market. Um, you know, if you can figure out how to make it make sense as an investor, it's probably worth diving into. Uh, you know, the good thing about this sector is that there are REITs, real estate investment trusts that you can invest in that own large portfolios of these so that you don't have to go out and just buy a rental home yourself and deal with that. You could actually uh, just go and, you know, invest with them basically like you're investing in a stock. The music is going to stop. The home builder land grab is a crisis in the making. So, you know, of course, when you've got a whole bunch of developers that are going out and building these massive single-family home uh, rental projects, you don't have any density on this land. I mean, you're taking acres and acres, and you're building single-family homes. I mean, think about it. You're, you're building, you know, what, half-acre lots? Probably pretty common. You know, you think about how many units in, in downtown areas you can fit on a half-acre lot. Right. And that's that's my problem with suburban sprawl is that it's just such a waste of, of good land. Um, you know, in my, in my opinion, high density is is the future. Everybody should live in higher density urban environments so that we don't have to go out and develop these massive tracts of land like this and, and kind of take away some of the nature that, you know, makes makes the world a great place. It's it's. One of the nice things about Nashville is that, you know, in 10 minutes, I can be out in the country from downtown, depending on which direction I decide to drive. And, you know, in the next 10 to 20 years, that's just not going to be true anymore. And it's it's kind of kind of sad to think about, honestly. But, you know, of course, it's uh, going to drive up land prices and it's going to be tough uh, to to find good dirt um, to go develop on. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see that trending for sure. These areas of the REITs sector could thrive this year. Three experts break down the space. This is according to CNBC. Um, we, we were just talking about REITs. Um, you know, as, as REITs, REITs perform pretty well in a down market uh, because, you know, I think, what is it, 90%? Yeah, they have to dis they're required to distribute 90% of their income back to investors, which makes it an attractive yield um, until, you know, rates start increasing. Uh, it looks like the S&P 500 REITs sector uh, being tracked by XLRE real estate ETF has fallen more than 1% in the past week as competition for high-yield assets increases. So it's kind of like, uh, 
I don't know, I guess kind of like gold, right? Gold is one of those assets that in a down market performs really well. And then you start getting up into a really hot market and it just, it you know, is average. Um, let's see. The underperformance this time around might be short-lived because of several factors. The reopening trade and more activity in commercial spaces such as malls and office spaces might increase demand in the space. Increased inflation, too, could boost rents and the value of real estate investments, which would drive REITs higher. That's pretty interesting. There's there's a positive uh, impact of, uh, of inflation. So let's see. The REIT sector is roughly 2.5% of the S&P 500. Um, and... Yeah, they're pointing to hotel, resort, residential, and retail REITs. They're, those are a pocket of opportunity. That's pretty interesting. So they're saying hotels, resorts, residential, which would include the, the build to rent that we were just talking about, and retail REITs are, you know, there's some opportunity there. Uh, office and industrial, on the other hand, they are lagging behind. That is actually surprising to me. It's probably because they have both been so popular for so long and now office space is just generally seen, like on, on a whole, uh, generally unattractive. And industrial is probably just so popular that it's tough to make the margins work. Honestly, I mean, industrial has performed so incredibly well um, over the last 10 years, thanks to online shopping. Let's see. Kim Sharp is saying, yes, I'd love to hear from the build to rent developer. Awesome. Well, I'll talk to Bruce. Uh, he's a great guy. I'm sure he'd love to come on the show and talk about it. Um, let's see. AM coming in with any container building thoughts. I love container buildings. Um, you know, we've been trying to figure out how to get a container development up and off the ground for quite some time now. And the problem is the guys that we talk to, we get pricing and then you start talking to them a little bit more and dive into it. And then the pricing changes and then this isn't included. And then that's not included And it. And it's incredibly frustrating, but in theory, shipping container homes and modular construction is it, it's everything, right? I mean, it should be way easier to do than any other type of construction. Think about what you can do with a shipping container. You're manufacturing it in a factory. It is a factory line process, right? I mean, you've got, I mean, it's it's a line. You go down, you've got the guy with the plumber, the plumber. He's coming in right after the guy that, that does the, you know, electric. And, and the guy that's coming in after them is laying the floor. And, and it's just a very easy process. You can really speed that up quickly. And you're not slowed down by weather. You're not slowed down by permitting. You're not slowed down by any of this stuff that you might be. Um, if you're doing your typical construction, they can literally put it all together and then ship it out on site. And all you have to do is go out, you know, dig. Uh, apparently, you don't pour footers. It, it, there's some other different kind of, of uh, you know, base that you really want to have uh, for these. So, of course, talk to your engineers, talk to your architects. But they, um, they come out and they, like, assemble them on site. We were actually talking to one of the manufacturers, and you know, because – you all you have to do is assemble it on site after they're manufactured you can get up and going so quickly we talked to one guy who did a project in japan where they were just uh they were sitting on some land and they wanted to um it was kind of a covered land play and so the uh the owners had a multifamily apartment complex made out of these storage containers that you know they were just renting out well one day they got an offer to sell from a shopping center developer who wanted to come in and develop a shopping center on the dirt. So they accepted the offer. They picked up the shipping containers and reinstalled them on a new site in two weeks. So you think about that, you give all your tenants notice and your downtime is two weeks. I mean, honestly, as a developer, you could pay to put them up in a hotel for that long and, and you know give them a half month off for the inconvenience. And then that you've still got your tenants in tow. Or you just go through a whole new lease up because it's a new project. There's any number of things that you could actually do there. Uh, so I'm a I'm a big fan, big fan of, of of shipping container homes. So thank you for asking that question. That was great. Um, yeah. So REITs, uh, pretty interesting. Um, ETF rose nearly one percent on Friday. Um, this was a, this is an Alps ETF. Yeah, I know. Kim, Kim Sharp says, that's amazing. Two weeks. Wow. LOL. It's, yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. 
Like, I mean, because if you think about it, all they're, they're, they're coming over there and they're basically unbuckling these shipping containers from each other. And they're unscrewing the plumbing and, like, undoing some electrical plugs. Everything else is pretty well self-contained, right? So uh, it's pretty remarkable to think what they can actually do um, with, uh, with that type of, of construction. So, you know, like I said, I think, of course, that's going to be the future. Um, this week's wild card is going to be a little bit different. I figured it would be appropriate to start bringing Andy Zhu in. He is the commercial analyst on my team, and, of course, he is the assistant producer for the Commercial Real Estate Investor Weekly update. And uh, let's, let's go ahead and see if I can get him on in. Sorry, my buttons aren't working. Let's see if I can actually make this happen. Andy, what's going on, man? Hey, Tyler, there I am. How you doing? There you are. Good, man. All right, let me see if I can get uh, get your screen going. But what's uh, what's this week's wild card? So this week I wanted to talk about crowdfunding in real estate because I think this is probably, if you're looking to get into the uh, commercial real estate investing sphere, this might be one of the easiest ways for you to get directly exposed to that. So essentially what crowdfunding is, if you think about how real estate developments typically get put together. Usually uh, a developer has an idea for a project, and this is what we do all the time. We have an idea for a project, then we have to go raise some money, right? And what we do to raise that money is we call a bunch of either private equity groups or you know institutional guys who have a lot of money, or we call um, a bunch of the people that we know who have a lot of money, and we raise money from them that way. And everybody puts in $50,000 here, $100,000 there. And so essentially what we're doing there is, in a sense, crowdfunding, right? And that means just getting a bunch of money from people in the crowd. So uh, that's what real estate development kind of is often and how uh, these real estate purchases work on a general level. So crowdfunding is really just making that more accessible for the individual person has, as they said, neighbors have bought property together, husbands and wives, sisters and brothers have collectively bought property, multiple institutions have come together to collectively purchase property forever. So now crowdfunding is kind of taking it to the next stage, just like how you have Kickstarter. If you guys have ever participated in Kickstarter or GoFundMe and how you can fund a different project or, you know, pay for somebody's medical bills there, you can do the same thing for a building. Right. It's a it's a way of participating essentially in a real estate syndication. So now uh, because they have these online platforms, you can go in and invest in these real estate crowdfunding uh, platforms and they come in several different forms. So sometimes they are traded like REITs. And as we were talking about REITs before, REITs being a real estate investment trust, a legal entity that's that owns real estate, but is required to give 90% of their income back to the investors. So you're buying it and you have two things that are benefits to you. You get to take those dividends and that income stream that's coming in from owning REITs. And also you get price appreciation, especially from REITs that are more directly tied to asset values, as opposed to there are things like mortgage REITs which, you know, own mortgages rather than the asset value themselves, right? So the way these real estate crowdfunding sites work is that either they will be a REIT, which is not a publicly traded REIT usually. So usually, uh, for example, with Fundrise, that's maybe the number one company that uh, does real estate crowdfunding, fundrise.com. They have what is called an e-REIT, which is a private REIT that is owned within their own system. What it means is you can put $500 to $1,000 to participate in one of these REIT investments. Uh, but the thing is, you can't necessarily sell your shares immediately like you could in a public market. So if you have a publicly listed REIT, you, know, you can liquidate your shares at any time. It goes up and down every single day. With these REITs, you're buying into a share of a private company, kind of like how you would buy if you own a condo or part of tenants in common, you would own part of the condo association, right? It's kind of that similar sort of idea where 
you're owning part of this REIT that owns part of a building or several groups of buildings, but it's not a publicly listed on the stock exchange. It's really just a way, a means of transaction internally within the platform. So REITs can give you, and these crowdfunding REITs especially, can give you a really good return. As, as they said here, they, they're looking at um, 8 to 12% returns, uh, which is pretty good. And something that, especially if you're buying into a real estate sector that is more stable, that is safe, you know, if you can get 8 to 12% returns and it's going to outperform the market, like Fundrise has said, compared to the, for the first half of 2020, their portfolio went up, actually, and uh, Vanguard ETFs went down and public REITs went way down. You're going to be pretty happy, right? When you, when, because especially because these platforms often have very strong vetting in terms of the properties that they are looking at and that they can list on their platforms. And usually they'll partner with developers like us or investors like us to crowdfund their real estate development. So essentially you are directly investing in uh, other private developments that otherwise you might not be able to invest in. So one way is that e-REIT format. Another way is essentially owning kind of a specific uh, se section or portion of a building to do crowdfunding as well as, and we, as we said before, the danger that comes with having higher yields and higher income streams is obviously that it can be a very illiquid asset that you can't be selling this every single day. You might have to wait once a quarter to get out. Is that something that you can deal with? And honestly, if you're investing in real estate in general, and if you want to invest in a private real estate deal, you're never going to be able to exit once a quarter, right? That's that's usually if you're investing in a private real estate development deal, uh, you're going to have to wait to exit after a you know three to five year to potentially ten year time horizon, and your money is locked up in that investment for a long time. So, investing in crowdfunding is a really good way to kind of bridge that gap between the direct investing into a private real estate deal and learning that way or owning a REIT. It's kind of in between those two. And some of the best crowdfunding sites, there's CrowdStreet, Diversity Fund, sorry, Diversity Fund, like Diversify, I suppose, Equity Multiple, Fundrise. Uh, and, and you can see here, their, their returns are really good, 11 to 24%, 11 to 18%, 13.7%, 8 to 12%, depending on the investment. 6 to 12%. And this one, I believe, is directly investing into other people's loans and stuff. 4.5 uh, to 8%. So you can see kind of there's a trade-off. The more liquid these properties are, the less potential returns you can get. And that's kind of the, the, the trade-off you have to be looking at when you're looking at crowdfunding real estate. But I do believe... Uh, you know, I have some money in, in, in REITs and stuff. And I think that it's a great way to get exposed to it. And especially because when you do invest in a crowdfunding site, you start with a thousand dollars, you know, you'll get access to their reports. You'll get access to their property information and all their investor pitch decks, just as if you had a million bucks with them. Now you're not gonna be able to necessarily get them on the phone and have them answer every one of your questions if you only have a thousand dollars with them. But you can start to see that information and the way people value these properties and how they're dealing with maintenance and operations. And to have that perspective is very valuable for you when, if you're trying to get into your own deals and do it yourself. So. That's kind of the brief introduction to crowdfunding uh, real estate. And hopefully you guys can look into that and potentially get some pretty good returns on your investment for that in the future. That is pretty interesting, Andy. Do you have, um, well, I guess we're still picture in a picture. <laughs> um, 
All right, Andy has jumped off. Appreciate you guys coming in. Thanks for bearing with me through all the technical difficulties this week. I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube so you can join us every Monday at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard Time and ask your questions. Thank you for everybody that jumped in this week uh, with, the, with the conversation. It was great to have. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast, don't forget to rate and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Thank <laughs> you.